Welcome to the Red Light Report, your number one source for all things red light therapy, where you will learn how to optimize your health, wellness, and longevity with the power of photobiomodulation. I'm your host, Dr. Mike Belkowski. Welcome back, everybody. Thanks for joining me on another episode of the Red Light Report. I hope you guys have been staying warm the past week or so. Up here in Montana, it's gotten anywhere from negative 20 to negative 30, toss in some wind chill to add to that. So it's been a nice and cozy uh, this past weekend, at least at the time of this recording. Uh, so I hope you guys have been staying warm. I've been doing plenty of sauna. I've been doing plenty of red light therapy in my cocoon. Quite frankly, I could stay in my cocoon all weekend as as nice and warm as that uh, proverbial sleeping bag is. And uh, speaking of saunas, uh, specifically infrared saunas, we're going to get into the differences and the nuances of infrared sauna and then how it differs from red light therapy. I've touched on this in the past and I've mentioned it multiple times uh, during some interviews in the past year or two, but I'm going to readdress it today. We've had a lot of new followers over the last three to six months plus um, listening to this podcast. So I want to reintroduce this topic because it's a very common FAQ uh, that we get constantly, whether it's on social media, via email, what have you. So I want to address it here on the podcast and really just hit it head on. Uh, I've had some requests just to talk about infrared saunas in general and and their health benefits. And then again, uh, from my perspective, I want to be very articulate and clear as far as how infrared saunas different from red light therapy, because of course, we have that near-infrared component of red light therapy. Of course, we have the red light, and then we have the near-infrared light, both that will comprise the nomenclature of red light therapy or photobiomodulation. So we're going to get into that, and then of course, we're going to touch on some more research, because it looks like you guys really enjoyed that research from last week, so we're going to continue that train uh, moving forward this week in this episode, and then uh, later on this month, we'll we'll start getting into, some, getting into some more interviews, because I know that's always enjoyable to listen to other people and other experts' thoughts in the health and wellness and longevity and, and red light therapy space, as enjoyable as it is to listen to the timbre of my voice, I think it's good to get, <laughs> to get some more people in here and so have some back and forth. In a perfect world, I'd have a little sidekick here just to have some back and forth. But but my sidekick in the room right now is is Kygo, uh, my German Shepherd dog. He just turned three earlier this afternoon. He was playing on the other side of the fence with his German Shepherd best friend. And so he's nice and tuckered just laying down here uh, listening to my voice as well. So Without further ado, guys, let's get into infrared saunas. And so when we're looking at the type of light or the type of frequency that's used with infrared saunas, it's predominantly far infrared light. So there are some saunas out there that say they use quote unquote full spectrum infrared light. And if there are, if you're looking into companies and you're kind of just kind of doing your research and due diligence as far as which sauna makes the most sense, and and you see these companies touting full spectrum infrared light, then I would ask for, of course, third party testing. Can you verify that there are some near infrared wavelengths, some mid infrared wavelengths, and of course, far infrared? And if so, with that third party testing, you want to see like, the percentages or, or or the ratio, like how much is far infrared? Is it 90%, 99%? Is it 60%? Is it 33%? And the same thing with mid and near infrared. Because if they're saying full spectrum infrared light, but there's only 10% mid infrared and 5% near infrared, of course, nothing's better or something's better than nothing. But at the end of the day, like that's not going to move the needle forward from a mitochondrial health standpoint. Because uh, then also you have to get into the fact that the follow-up question is, okay, so here's your third-party testing results. It looks like you do have far and mid and near. But now, as you guys are well aware, when it comes to red light therapy, we want to know the light intensity. So, okay, you have near-infrared. What's the light irradiance or what's the uh, strength of that near-infrared? Because that's also going to play a role in your dosaging 
as far as what's the appropriate amount, depending on what you're trying to treat. Quite frankly, this is just my opinion, I want to segregate my treatments. If I'm a red light therapy enthusiast, and if I'm an infrared sauna, or just a sauna, it doesn't have to be infrared, but a sauna enthusiast, I don't want to have crossover with my near infrared light, because as we have learned continuously on this podcast, more is not better. And so it's already easy enough to fall into the over-treatment category when it comes to red light therapy, especially that near-infrared light. Well, quite frankly, the red light too when it comes to skin treatments and eye treatments. So red light therapy, it's it's very easy to over-treat. And again, we're back to that biphasic dose response concept where you want to get right underneath a bell curve for an efficacious treatment. So if I'm using near-infrared light, let's say every other day or you know three days a week with my red light therapy treatments, I need to be really diligent and and thoughtful about how I'm integrating near-infrared light with my infrared sauna if I do choose to use this full-spectrum sauna that integrates near-infrared. So that's where it gets to be a little, you know, a little tricky. Maybe we're overthinking things, but at the same time, we do want to be mindful that, I mean, that's why we have protocols for red light therapy. That's why we don't necessarily want to do red light therapy every single day Whereas I would argue you may want to use your infrared sauna or sauna every single day because it looks like there are some great longevity and other health benefits derived from daily sauna use. So again, do we really want the near infrared every single day? The argument against that question, I guess I'm kind of arguing with myself here, just playing devil's advocate. It's the fact that, well, there's infrared light in the sunlight. Full spectrum sunlight is comprised of all the way from UV up through through the infrareds. So you can argue that you're getting infrared light every single day that you're outside getting sunlight. But again, this is more getting into the weeds and into the details and into the nuances of mitochondrial health, uh, specifically as it's being stimulated via infrared light. And I just want us all to be cognizant of not getting too much infrared on a daily basis um, as it relates to these type of modalities. Of course, infrared saunas and especially red light therapy devices are going to have a much more concentrated form of infrared light versus going outside in the sunlight, which is a much lower intensity, if you will. So again, we're kind of getting in the trenches here and into the details. But again, stepping back a little bit out of this rabbit hole, personally, I just want to use an infrared sauna that's predominantly far infrared. Perhaps it has some mid infrared, but I don't need the near infrared because I'm already getting that through my red light therapy. So again, as it pertains to infrared saunas, they typically use far infrared light. And of course, this is within the far infrared portion of the electromagnetic spectrum and far infrared wavelengths are longer, of course, compared to near and mid infrared wavelengths. So they're going to penetrate even deeper than the near infrared of red light therapy, much deeper. And so the far infrared light is commonly utilized in infrared saunas for uh, several reasons. Number one is penetration, like I alluded to. Far infrared rays have the ability to penetrate the skin and heat the body directly. This penetration is believed to introduce various health benefits, including improved circulation, relaxation, and what sauna is notorious for, which is that potential detoxification through the sweat. And you get that deep sweat because of those long, far infrared wavelengths. Uh, Another consideration is that far infrared saunas operate at lower temperatures compared to traditional saunas. Despite their lower air temperature, users often, often experience a deep penetrating heat making the sauna session more comfortable. So you're not necessarily, and I've experienced this because I had a barrel sauna for a long time, and you have to get that barrel sauna hot, really hot before you start sweating because, again, you're just increasing that ambient air temperature. Whereas if you're using an infrared sauna, the air temperature really doesn't get that hot, and so your skin doesn't get hot or uncomfortable, yet you're still getting that deep sweat. Uh, So you're kind of getting the best of both worlds. You're not getting too hot externally, but you're still getting that deep sweat and detoxing. Uh, 
And then a third consideration is that a safety. So far infrared saunas are considered safe for most individuals as they operate at lower temperatures and are generally well tolerated. This makes them accessible to a broader range of people, including those who might find the higher temperatures uncomfortable. Okay, so now we know that infrared saunas predominantly use far infrared light. Again, like I spoke about earlier, if someone is touting full spectrum infrared, then you want to ask for that third party testing to verify just how much of the far infrared, just how much of the mid and how much of the near infrared is, is being utilized. And then what is the strength of that near infrared if they do in fact use it? So now let's look into uh, the top reasons or the top benefits of using a sauna, specifically infrared sauna. Number one, and, and this is in no specific order of uh, significance or priority. This is this is just a top 10 list in general. Uh, but we'll start at the top here. Number one is heart health and longevity. So looking at the journal JAMA Internal Medicine, and JAMA stands for Journal of the American Medical Association. But again, looking at their article, it shows that regularly spending time in a sauna may help keep the heart healthy and extend life. So researchers from Finland tracked 2,300 men for an average of 20 years. They found that the more sessions per week men spent in the sauna, the lower the risk of sudden cardiac death and fatal coronary heart disease. The sauna also extended the life of participants with other illnesses, including cancer. So shout out to infrared or, or saunas in general for improving heart health and longevity. Number two, and this is of course one of the more popular ones, is detoxification of chemicals and heavy metals. So the skin is a major detox organ and sweating through the skin is a critical human detox function, yet most people don't sweat enough. Because of this, we miss out on a major source of toxin elimination being the skin. To combat these effects, an infrared sauna helps to purify the body from the inside out, eliminating compounds such as PCBs, metals, and toxins that are stored in fat cells which can undergo lipolysis and release toxins uh, upon exposure to the heat. Number three, athletic recovery from, from exercise or, or for those weekend warriors. And... This one might not be obvious when it comes to saunas, but growth hormone is a crucial uh, repair and recovery hormone, especially for the muscles. And research has shown that two 20-minute sauna sessions elevated growth hormone levels twofold over baseline. Two 15-minute sauna sessions at an even warmer temperature resulted in a five-fold increase in growth hormone. And two one-hour sauna sessions for seven days has been shown to increase, excuse me, increase growth hormone 16-fold. For an additional recovery benefit, sauna also increases blood flow to the skeletal muscles, which helps keep them fueled with glucose, amino acids, fatty acids, and oxygen while removing byproducts of metabolic processes such as lactic acid and calcium ions. The take-home message there is it really doesn't take much sauna time and duration and frequency to see a nice bump in your growth hormone levels. And again, especially if you're an exercise enthusiast, let alone like a serious athlete or professional athlete, like this is a no-brainer. You increase the frequency and then secondarily, you increase the intensity, meaning temperature of your sessions, and you can see a massive, massive increase in your endogenous production of growth hormone. And that alone, coupled with some amazing sleep, because we know that sleep is our best time for recovery, i.e. growth hormone production. So you pair those two together and, and you're going to have some quick and accelerated recovery times and, and growth in your, your exercise regimen, if you will. But moving on here, number four, arthritic and muscular pain relief. In the Annals of Clinical Research, Volume 20, research results show the benefits of sauna for relief of pain and increased mobility. 
Pain relief induced by a sauna was attributed to an increase in the release of anti-inflammatory compounds such as noradrenaline, adrenaline, cortisol, and growth hormones, as well as an increase in, in positive stress on the body, i.e. hormetic response or hormetic stress, causing it to release natural pain-killing endorphins. More than 50% of participants reported relief of pain and an increase in mobility, most likely due to the fact that tissues comprised of collagen, such as tendons, fascia, and joint articular capsules, become more flexible at increased temperatures. Well guys, BioLite has what's called bundles. So simply go to the BioLite website, BioLite.shop, go under products and there'll be a tab for bundles. With each of these bundles, there's three of them, you save 20% off on the entire package. For example, we have the Beauty Bundle, which includes a Shine and Stand, a Guardian Plus, and the Longev Revive Cream. So that bundle of three products, you save 20% off the entire package. There's the Recovery Bundle. That includes the Recharge Plus panel, the Guardian, mouthpiece and then the Longev Recover Cream. And that Recover Cream is just like the Revive Cream except it has added CBD oil infused into it. That package of three items all comes at 20% off. And then the last bundle, which is the most versatile bundle in the sense that you get to pick and choose what products you want, you get to pick and choose from the Recharge Plus panel, the Restore Plus panel, or the Matrix Full Body Mat. And then you get to choose between the Guardian and Guardian Plus. And then you get to choose between the Revive and the Recover Cream. It also includes the shine and stand so you get to choose between black and silver. By purchasing those four products in the ultimate bundle, you save 20% off all of the products. You also save 20% off shipping. So literally the entire package and shipping is 20% off. So if you're ever needing some red light therapy products and are looking for a discount, just remember the bundles are always 20% off. 365 days a year, no coupon code necessary. So it's a no-brainer. You could easily pair sauna, infrared sauna with yoga, infrared sauna with cupping, infrared sauna um, with red light therapy in the sense of improving uh, mobility and, and increasing the health of the collagen. So there's a lot of ways that and we can talk about this, that you can have a synergistic effect with, with the sauna. But even the sauna alone, as we're hearing here, has a lot of amazing benefits. And of course, this is specifically or, or predominantly via the far infrared light. Moving on to number five, muscle gain and fat loss. Sauna can promote muscle growth and fat loss by improving insulin sensitivity and decreasing muscle protein catabolism or breakdown. Intermittent hyperthermia has been shown to reduce insulin resistance in obese mice, and in this case, insulin-resistant diabetic mice were subjected to 30 minutes of heat treatment three times a week for 12 weeks. The results were a 31% decrease in insulin levels and a reduction in blood glucose levels, both of which can contribute to an increase in muscle growth and an increase in weight control and fat loss. It has also been shown that a 30-minute intermittent hyperthermic treatment can cause a significant expression of something called heat shock proteins in muscle. And we're going to get into heat shock proteins here in a little bit, guys, so remember that for the moment. Uh, which is correlated with 30% more muscle regrowth after a week of immobilization. In other words, if you don't exercise but you sauna instead, you can still maintain muscle. So again, if you're an athlete or exercise enthusiast, that's another feather in the cap of a reason to use sauna, A, uh, HGH, that, that bump in human growth hormone, and then secondarily, you're increasing the expression of heat shock protein synthesis, which is essentially sparing your muscles on those days or, or those long periods of times where you might not be exercising and stressing the muscles as much. Number six, immune system boost. The Journal of Human Kinetics investigated the effect of sauna on the immune system, specifically white blood cell profile, cortisol levels, and selected physiological indices in athletes and non-athletes. After the sauna session, an increased number of white blood cells, lymphocytes, basophil counts, was reported in the white blood cell profile, showing that sauna use stimulates the immune system. German medical research 
also shows that saunas are able to significantly reduce the incidences of colds and influenza, and other studies show that regular sauna bathing leads to a 30% less chance of getting a cold or influenza. Number seven, skin rejuvenation. When your body produces sweat via the deep sweating you experience in an infrared sauna, the rate at which dead skin cells are replaced can be increased. At the same time, heavy sweating helps to remove bacteria out of the epidermal layer of the skin and the sweat ducts. This pore cleansing also causes increased capillary circulation, which can give the skin a softer looking, younger appearance. When you sweat, the movement of fluid to the skin delivers mineral-rich nutrients and also helps to fill spaces around the cells, increasing firmness and reducing the appearance of wrinkles. So, by continually flushing waste through the skin cells via the use of hyperthermia, you increase skin health, tone, and color, and cleanse the pores. Number 8. Relaxation and better sleep. Researchers have found that a sauna can help provide a deeper, more relaxed sleep, relief of chronic tension, and relief of chronic fatigue issues, most likely due to a release of endorphins from the sauna. As endorphins are released into your body, they create a soothing, tranquilizing effect that not only helps to minimize chronic arthritic pain and other muscle soreness, but can also help with relaxation and sleep. Number 9. Increased Cardiovascular Performance Research has shown 30 minutes of sauna treatment after exercise can cause an increase in oxygen consumption and red blood cell production that parallels the use of erythropoietin, which is a form of blood doping used to increase endurance, especially in high-end athletes. So imagine that, 30 minutes after exercise, you're getting that increased oxygen consumption and red blood cell production that is comparable to the use of erythropoietin. So in the temperatures of an infrared sauna, your skin heats up and core body temperature rises. Then, in response to these increased heat levels, the blood vessels near the skin dilate and cause an increase in cardiac output. So with regular sauna use, you are training your heart muscles and improving your cardiac output. And then number 10, increased stress resilience. Multiple research studies have shown that hyperthermia via the use of a sauna can prevent protein degradation and muscle loss by triggering the production of heat shock proteins, which are then used by your cells to counteract potentially harmful stimulus, including environmental stress from pollutants, toxins, heat, cold, exercise stress, and more. Whenever a cell is exposed to an unfriendly environment, your DNA separates in specific regions and be begins to read the genetic code to produce new stress proteins, including these heat shock proteins. What this means is that exposure to sauna heat can induce a hormetic response, which promotes the production of heat shock proteins crucial to stress resistance, prevention of free radical damage, support of cellular antioxidant capacity, and repair of damaged proteins. But let's dig a little further into these heat shock proteins. So again, infrared sauna sessions have been associated with the activation of heat shock proteins, which are a group of proteins that play a crucial role in cellular stress, uh, the cellular stress response specifically. And the benefits of infrared sauna on heat shock proteins include six here. Number one, cellular repair and protection. So heat shock proteins are involved in repairing damaged proteins and preventing the aggregation of misfolded proteins. By inducing the production of heat shock proteins, infrared sauna use may support cellular repair processes. Number two, anti-inflammatory effects. Infrared sauna sessions have been linked to reduced levels of inflammation and heat shock proteins contribute to this anti-inflammatory response. Activation of heat shock proteins can modulate inflammatory pathways and potentially mitigate inflammation in the body. Number three, and we alluded to this, was the stress adaptation. Heat shock proteins help cells adapt to stress conditions. Regular exposure to heat stress induced by infrared saunas may lead to increased production of heat shock proteins, 
promoting cellular resilience and adaptation to stressors. Number four, improved cellular function. Heat shock proteins are involved in maintaining the proper folding of proteins and assisting in the transport of proteins within cells. This can contribute to overall cellular function and may have implications for various physiological processes. Number five, cardiovascular health. The induction of heat shock proteins has been associated with improved cardiovascular health. Infrared sauna use may promote vasodilation, enhanced blood flow, and contribute to cardiovascular well-being through mechanisms involving heat shock protein activation. And lastly, detoxification. Some research suggests that heat shock proteins play a role in cellular detoxification processes. By facilitating the removal of damaged or misfolded proteins, heat shock proteins may contribute to the overall detoxification response induced by infrared saunas. And so there you have it. Some of the big take-homes, especially, again, if you're an exercise enthusiast or you're just an active person or you're an athlete, what have you, pairing infrared saunas, apparently especially post-exercise, can lead to a big boost or a big bump in production of human growth hormone. And then secondarily, by, by exposing your cells, exposing your body to the stress of heat, inducing this influx or this production of heat, heat shock protein synthesis. And we just went over the benefits there. So even those couple alone, and then of course, the, the very first one we talked about, which was longevity. So again, tracking 2300 men over two decades showing they had decreased heart problems, increased lifespan, and probably increased health span as well. I mean, that's kind of almost enough for, for a person to be motivated to start utilizing a sauna, specifically an infrared sauna, what we're talking about today, on a regular basis. And that could be anywhere from three times a week, four times a week, you know, all the way up to seven times a week, using it every single day. Personally, and this is just because I enjoy my summers and, and I like the cool mornings, it's tough for me to use the sauna in the summer. So I'm very much a, a seasonal sauna user. Again, when, when the summer comes around and, and the mornings are the only form of air conditioning, if you will, then I like to enjoy those mornings. I don't, I don't want to use the mornings to sauna, or I don't even want to think about the sauna in the middle of a hot summer's day, like, like I'm already trail running, or I'm already outside, you know, working in the garden or moving around golfing, what have you. So I'm already sweating as is. I'm just not motivated to get in a sauna in the summer. So again, I'll go anywhere from mid to late fall through probably late spring. I'll be using my sauna anywhere from three to five days a week on a consistent basis. And then of course, I'm pairing that with my red light therapy. And this is a good segue into the next section here as it relates to infrared saunas and red light therapy. So I said, I, 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 you know, I do my infrared saunas and I do my red light therapy, but I don't do them together. And I want to drive this point home because I don't know how many times I've responded via email or via DMs or, or otherwise about this concept that we all learned about on this podcast last summer from Dr. Praveen Arani. And if you haven't listened to that episode, I highly, highly recommend it. He's, he's one of the most well-respected photobiomodulation researchers out there. And he informed all of us in that episode that he had recently learned that combining infrared saunas or, or just saunas in general with red light therapy is actually no bueno. And it's not that it leads to a negative effect or anything like that. It's that the temperature of the sauna inhibits the benefits of red light therapy. And this is very interesting because it's in a day and time where I've seen this more and more with saunas, especially infrared saunas. So they're starting to integrate red light therapy LEDs. They're starting to integrate different types and forms of red light therapy panels into their saunas. But that flies in the face of what Dr. Arani has told us and informed us is that the heat of the sauna inhibits any benefit you think you're getting from the red light therapy. Again, there's no negative consequence. You're just not accruing those many wonderful health benefits, whether it's skin or, or mitochondrial or, or otherwise. You're not getting those benefits from the red light therapy when immersed in all of that heat. So I want to make that very, very clear. 
do your infrared saunas or do your sauna treatments separate from your red light therapy treatments. You could probably do them even back to back. Just don't do them instantaneously. Don't do them together. Separate them. And so this brings up another point. So so I just want to drive home again. Do not do red light therapy and saunas at the same time. All right, we got that clear. So that begs the question, what's the difference between infrared saunas and the near-infrared light of red light therapy? And this is kind of a rhetorical question at this point because we went over a lot of the benefits of infrared saunas. Um, but getting down to the physiological level and, and really into the uh, where the rubber meets the road, as I like to say, the mitochondria respond to only two forms or two types of spectra, red and near-infrared. So that cytochrome C oxidase, that chromophore that gets excited by the red and the near-infrared light does not get excited by mid-infrared. It does not get excited by far-infrared light. So many of the health benefits that are derived from red light therapy are because of what it does to the mitochondria. It improves the function of the mitochondria at a very profound level. Arguably, red light therapy is the best way to augment your mitochondrial health. So, and what I mean by being excited by, when I say the cytochrome C oxidase is excited by the red light and excited by the near-infrared light, it means it is stimulated and there's some change going on uh, that's allowing the mitochondria to function at a deeper level. So very quickly, um, just to review for all of us, when our mitochondria becomes less functional or when a mitochondria becomes dysfunctional, it is thought and it is theorized that the cytochrome C oxidase, which is supposed to be excited by red and near-infrared light on a consistent basis, which can easily be accomplished with consistent full-spectrum sunlight, but when it doesn't, because of our modern lifestyles, we've, we've, we're living indoors at the highest rate at any time in our biological history as human beings. And so with that, we have not been exciting our cytochrome C oxidase on the mitochondria as often as possible. So what that means is that the nitric oxide stays bound to the cytochrome C oxidase. In a sense, it is capping the cytochrome C oxidase, whereas we want oxygen to be getting in because oxygen into the electron transport chain inside of the mitochondria allows for efficient ATP production, efficient energy production. Mitochondria, once again, are uh, responsible for upwards of 95% of all energy production in our body. And you guys have heard me say it once, I'll say it again, um, just as a quick review. Dr. Doug Wallace, the top mitochondrial researcher, says that the more energy you have produced per cell, the healthier you're going to be, the less disease you're going to have. And so again, this all comes back to the cytochrome C oxidase either being capped or dissociated from the nitric oxide. So that's what happens when the cytochrome C oxidase gets excited by the red and or near-infrared light. It causes a dissociation of the nitric oxide, meaning it's no longer capping the CCO, the cytochrome C oxidase, and now oxygen can get in and, and produce ATP at inefficient and effective levels. So that's why red and near-infrared light is such a big deal and has such a profound effect on our health and wellness. It's all about improving mitochondrial function via energy production, and the more energies we can pr- produce per cells, the healthier we're going to be at the root cause level. So... I say all of that to juxtapose with infrared saunas, which use far infrared. So at a very basic level, it's not going to stimulate or or have any effect or any direct effect on mitochondrial health compared to red light therapy. So when I get the question all the time, well, which you know, modality should I invest in, an infrared saunas or, or, or a red light therapy? You know, which one's better? And the answer to that question is neither of them are better. Ultimately, it depends on what are your health and wellness goals. Are you looking to improve exercise recovery? Are you looking to improve 
cardiac health? Are you looking to improve heat shock protein synthesis? Are you looking to improve, you know, human growth hormone production? Then of course, go with the sauna. If you're looking to improve anything that has to do with mitochondrial health, meaning like you're dealing with a a disease or or a condition directly tied to mitochondrial dysfunction, which again is upwards of 80% of modern diseases, then you want to be looking at red light therapy. I would say the infrared sauna, based on what we've learned today, has a leg up on red light therapy for the human growth hormone aspect, for the heart health aspect. I'm not saying red light therapy can't help with the heart, but it's hard to get light directly to the heart because it's so deep. So we know that the far infrared light can penetrate deeper and get that deep detox. So that's another reason to use infrared sauna is for that detox. And then lastly, that heat shock protein synthesis. I've never heard or read anything about red light therapy doing that, which makes sense because red and near infrared light does not produce enough heat to stress your your body and your cells to uh, increase heat shock protein synthesis. So those would be the reasons to use a sauna on a daily basis. Based on what we're learning though with mitochondria and their impact on our overall health and our overall health span and longevity, red light therapy is virtually unparalleled when it comes to pain reduction of the musculoskeletal system. It doesn't matter how it was caused or what type of musculoskeletal pain you have, red light therapy can help. We can look into skin, we can look into brain health, we can look into eye health, the thyroid. I mean, of course, if you guys are listening to this podcast, I don't, I'm don't. i preaching to the choir here, but there's a laundry list of ways that red light therapy can improve your health. And so at the end of the day, it's apples and oranges. They're two extremely different treatments. They have very different effects on the body. And in a perfect world, you should be utilizing red light therapy and sauna whether it's a traditional sauna or infrared sauna, you should be using them both on a consistent basis. And as I talked about earlier in the podcast, red light therapy shouldn't be done every single day necessarily. Of course, I say that as I have you know my, my BioLite Glow on my desk and I'm using that on a daily basis. But as far as my cocoon, I'll use that three times a week, maybe four, but no more. Whereas in infrared sauna, you could argue that you want to use that on a daily basis. There's many benefits to be had. Longevity, exercise recovery, heat shock protein synthesis, growth hormone production. So maybe you do want to use a sauna on a daily basis. But red light therapy, not so much. And of course, this is going to sound biased, but if I had to choose one or the other, sauna or red light therapy, that I was going to use on a consistent basis going forward, I would choose red light therapy simply for the fact that it profoundly impacts the mitochondria. And we know that in the end, mitochondria health and vitality and function is is one of the main hallmarks of health and wellness. It's the root cause of a lot of modern diseases. So if I'm going to stick with one, it's red light therapy. And I think as, as, as you know, as the research comes out, we're going to find more and more and more ways that red light therapy can benefit us, whether again, it's just health and wellness, or if we're treating a disease or cancer or otherwise. So I'm going to hang my hat on red light therapy. But that's not a knock on saunas or infrared saunas at all. That's just my personal preference. But let's wrap up today's solo sode with a pretty intriguing article, uh, literally got published less than a week ago at the time of this recording. And it's out of the journal Ophthalmology and Therapy. It's entitled The Effects of Repeated Low-Level Red Light Therapy on the Structure and Vasculature of the Choroid and Retina in Children with Pre-Myopia. And so, first off, let's learn a little bit about myopia. So, Myopia has become a significant global public health concern. Studies have shown that myopia progresses more rapidly when it occurs at a younger age, and that early onset myopia is a risk factor for high myopia, which can lead to serious ocular complications, including retinal detachment, retinal break, choroidal neovascularization, and myopic maculopathy. Such complications can significantly impair vision and are often irreversible. Pre 
myopes, or excuse me, premyopes, represent a critical population characterized by a reduction in physiological hyperopia or hyperopia and more positive near retinoscopy. After the onset of myopia in children, its progression is difficult to control. Therefore, it is crucial to keep children in a premyopia state to delay or prevent the onset of myopia. So just like prediabetes is is the predecessor to diabetes, premyopia is, you know, leads to the onset of full-blown myopia. And so recent evidence has suggested that uh, increased outdoor activity and reduced long-term near work could potentially aid in preventing myopia onset. However, limited information is available in the literature regarding medical interventions to prevent myopia. Repeated low-level red light therapy, and, and this is ironic as I'm using my glow as I'm reading this on my monitor, uh, repeated low-level red light therapy has recently emerged as a safe and effective therapy for myopia control, offering an alternative to increasing bright light exposure. A clinical study has demonstrated that red light therapy significantly reduced the rate of myopia progression and axial elongation over a period of six months compared to orthokeratology and single vision spectacles. In a 12-month multi-center randomized clinical trial involving 264 children aged 8 to 13 years, red light therapy was shown to be an effective treatment for myopia control compared to single vision spectacles, and no functional or structural damage was reported. Despite the demonstrated effectiveness of red light therapy in myopia control, the mechanism underlying its suppressive effect remains unclear. Recent evidence has identified scleral hypoxia as a key promoter of scleral remodeling and myopia development. To address this issue, there was a study that hypothesized that red light therapy treatment might improve blood flow and metabolism of the fundus, leading to amelioration of scleral hypoxia and restoration of scleral collagen levels. In recent years, there has been increasing interest in the role of the choroid and retina in myopia etiology, as the choroid has been found to react to optical defocus and the retina is expected to process the sign of optical defocus and initiate a multi-layered signaling cascade from the retina to the choroid and then to the sclera. And so long story short, that's what the study was looking at is the impact of low-level red light therapy and its effect on the choroid. So if we go to the intervention and study procedures of the article, it goes as follows. Children in the red light therapy group received red light therapy treatment twice daily with each session lasting three minutes and at least four hours between treatments while the control group did not receive that red light therapy treatment. And given that the treatment time for the two daily sessions needed to be separated by more than four hours, one treatment session was planned to occur prior to the child going to school in the morning, and the second session was planned that same afternoon after school. The red light therapy intervention was provided by a desktop device, and this technology incorporates a semiconductor laser diodes that emit low-intensity, single-wave, 650-nanometer red light razor, <laughs> razor, red light laser beam at an illuminance level of approximately 1600 lux through the pupil to the fundus. And so they're giving us lux instead of uh, light irradiance, which would be in milliwatts per centimeter squared. And I googled a conversion and there's no conversion for lux to milliwatts per centimeter squared because... Lux in centimeter squared are simply different units. Rather, uh, they are units for different measurements. So milliwatts per centimeter squared is a unit for irradiance or light irradiance, which is energy falling on a surface. And lux is a photometric unit for illuminance, which is visible light falling on a surface. So on, on one hand, uh, milliwatts per centimeter squared is a measurement for absorbed energy or irradiance. 
Whereas again, Lux, uh, you're, you're measuring the visible brightness. So in this article, they're giving us Lux, rest assured that is very, very low because they're going to be looking at it with their eyes. For example, the Lux of direct sunlight is upwards of a hundred thousand, a hundred thousand Lux. And again, in this article, they're using a piece of technology that has the illuminance of 1600 Lux. So almost 50 times less than the brightness of the sun. Uh, but regardless, so, so they're using 650. That's other, the other take home point. They're using red light. They're not using near infrared, specifically red light. And so the participants, they had follow-up visits at one month, three month, six month, nine and 12 months. And ultimately, uh, this is what they learned from the study that eyes treated with that low level red light therapy showed a significant increase in choroidal thickness and flow throughout the 12 months, as well as a reduction in spherical equivalent progression and axial elongation. And when it comes to myopia, it's the elongation that causes the vision problems. So again, it's reducing that axial elongation of the eye, thus helping mitigate and potentially preventing that progression from pre-myope to full-blown myopia. So this suggests that the low-level red light therapy could be used as an effective therapy for the control of the progression of axial myopia in children with pre-myopia susceptible to myopic progression. The effectiveness of the red light therapy in controlling myopia may be partially mediated through that choroidal thickening. So as they posited in the introduction, there was no research that had looked specifically at the choroid. And so they found that the effectiveness of red light therapy may actually be secondary to that choroidal thickening. So very interesting. And the findings once again highlight the specific role of choroidal signaling pathways in inducing modifications that mitigate scleral hypoxia and remodeling, ultimately aiding in the effective prevention of myopia among populations with premyopia. And of course, myopia and premyopia is like a massive epidemic over in Asia, especially China. As you can imagine, you think we spend a lot of time on our phones and computers, China's at a whole other level. Like they're constantly on their phones, if not also on their computers, let's say 28 hours a day, you know, tongue in cheek, like they're constantly in that near focus range. So again, they're basically having an epidemic of children having full-blown myopia. It's almost like children in the United States having type 2 diabetes at a younger and a younger age. So while we're dealing with type 2 diabetes, Chinese kids are dealing with myopia at unprecedented rates. So to have this type of research, and again, this came out on January 10th of this year, 2024. So to have this type of research showing that something as simple as low level red light therapy could halt the progression of and even reverse the progression of this premyopia diagnosis or, or, or condition, we're literally decreasing the axial elongation of the eyeball. That's amazing. That's simply amazing. And this is the type of research I'm talking about that I'm excited to see coming out. So this article is about the eye. Who knows what else we're going to find out about, about the brain or about the thyroid or about different organs or about the skin or who knows what. I mean, it's just, it's just exciting. So Again, I've, I've alluded to it a couple of times during this episode, but I can't say it enough that the glow device by BioLite with its extremely low light irradiance, and for example, you're probably used to seeing panels that have 100 milliwatts per centimeter squared or, or 150 milliwatts per centimeter squared, sometimes even upwards of 200 milliwatts per centimeter squared. And again, these are not third-party tested devices, but you get my point. You're used to seeing panels with light irradiance in, in the hundreds. And the glow device, third-party tested, has a light irradiance of 18.5 milliwatts per centimeter squared. And that's at zero inches. So again, when it's on, or it's on my desk here by my monitor, I'm easily 12, 18 inches away. Uh, and I actually have two light irradiance measurements for the glow that are third-party tested. Again, 18.5 at zero inches. At six inches, it goes down to 1.6 milliwatts per, per centimeter squared. 
So I'm probably close to uh, 0.5 to 1 milliwatts per centimeter squared at the distance that I have it. And again, it's an, it's an extremely soft glow. I mean, it lives up to its name, but it is perfect as, as this study has alluded to low level red light therapy for the eyes. And again, and I'm not trying to treat any vision issues. I'm just being prophylactic. I'm being proactive with these types of treatments. A, I just want to bathe my skin because that's another treatment that requires a low dosage, relatively speaking, compared to the rest of the body. But the eyes also require a very low dosage. So by the globing on my desk, I'll use it anywhere from three to eight times throughout the course of the day for the full 10 minute cycles, because at the distance I have it, I'm just getting very, very low dosages, but throughout the day, as I'm at my computer screen, so I'm getting my skin, my eyes are getting the health benefits, and it's counteracting the potentially harm benefits of, of the blue light from the screen. So I highly, highly advocate you consider a device like that that can, that can provide that low glow red light glow for your eyes, as we just learned about the many potential impacts and benefits that it can have on vision, in this case, myopia or pre-myopia states of the eye. So just food for thought, but, but a very compelling article. Let me scroll down here and get to the conclusion. It's probably just going to articulate what we learned. But in conclusion, in summary, our study demonstrated that a significant increase in choroidal thickness and flow in eyes receiving low-level red light therapy treatment at the 12-month visit, combined with the reduction in spherical elongation progression and axial elongation, low-level red light therapy could be used as an effective therapy for preventing progression in premyopes. However, further studies with a larger sample size and a long-term follow-up are needed to establish its use in this population. Of course, always with that caveat that we need a better research and more research to verify and corroborate. But regardless, very compelling research, very, very cool article to kick off our, our 2024. Too bad it's not year 2020 or else we could say 2020 vision. We don't want to say 2024 vision. Uh, but regardless, very cool research. And I hope you guys found that interesting. I hope this episode was, was you know, provided some insight and answer some questions, especially as it pertained to infrared saunas and then maybe red light therapy versus infrared saunas. If you have any lingering questions, please feel free to reach out to me either through social media or, or just straight through email info at biolight.shop. But as always, I hope you guys found this useful and I'll see you guys next week on the next episode. In the meantime, stay warm, use your sauna, use your red light therapy, but separately, not together. As always, light up and also heat up your health. Red Light Therapy Infrared Sauna. <laughs> See you guys next week. Thank you for listening to the Red Light Report. If you like what you heard today, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes and other podcast platforms to help spread the word so other people can learn about the many health, wellness, and longevity benefits of red light therapy. If you're looking for more educational content, check out our Instagram page at biolite.shop and our YouTube channel, Biolite. I'm Dr. Mike Belkowski, and I'll see you on the next episode.